Welcome back to The Conspiracies with Chase, Season 4 Rewind. In this massive episode, we're going to go back and look at all of the episodes in Season 4. To start us off tonight, we are going to go back to Season 4, Episode 1, which is the Simulation Hypothesis. And in this episode, we discuss the well-known conspiracy that we are apparently living in a simulation. Really what it is is just a massive episode that has all of the other episodes put together in it. Let's just sit back and enjoy the ride. Welcome back to Conspiracies with Chase and our Season 4 premiere. In today's episode, we will be talking about a very famous conspiracy, one that has been brought to me many times. The conspiracy we will be talking about today is that we live in a simulation. Let's get started. The theory is relatively simple. It claims that we live in a computer simulation. In a 2003 report titled, Are You Living in a Computer Simulation? Swedish philosopher Nick Bostrom stated that the future generations might have mega computers that can run numerous and detailed simulations of their forebears. This is commonly known as ancestor simulations, in which simulated beings are imbued with a sort of artificial consciousness. In the article, Bostrom talked about how one of these things is true. Number one, all human-like civilizations in the universe go extinct before they develop the technological capacity to create simulated realities. Number two, if any civilizations do reach this phase of technological maturity, none of them will bother to run simulations. And number three, Advanced civilizations who would have the ability to create many, many simulations, and that means that there are far more simulated worlds than non-simulated ones. However, we do not know if any of these are true. Nick claimed that there are all three are possible, and deemed option three, advanced civilizations would have the ability to create many, many simulations, and that means that there are far more simulated worlds than non-simulated ones as the most possible option to be true. Many things have been linked to the conspiracy. These things include the Mandela Effect, DNA that contains computer virus, climate change, video games, and many more. Let's talk about some of these and see why it's easy to think that they can be linked to us living in a simulation. Number one is the Mandela Effect. This theory is about the Mandela Effect, which is when people are sure that something is one thing when it is actually something different. These things include Nelson Mandela, the Berenstein Bears, and etc. People thought that Berenstein was spelled with an E, not an A, and that Mandela died in the 1980s when he actually died in 2013. This theory claims to be the proof that whoever is in charge of the simulation is changing history in the past. But the question is, if we were truly living in a simulation, what past would there be to change? Number two is DNA. According to Wired.com, a group of researchers from the University of Washington has shown that for the first time it's possible to encode malicious software into physical strands of DNA. So that when a gene sequencer analyzes it, the resulting data becomes a program that corrupts the gene sequencing software and takes control of the underlying computer. So how is it that just because we are able to prove that we can encode malicious software into physical strands of DNA? that that automatically proves that we live in assimilation. Moving on to number three in climate change. This theory is pretty short. It claims that the reason we are living in assimilation is simply so that we can see what would happen if we didn't try to slow down global warming. 
it also says that we could be in an ancient simulation created in hopes that we'd show our creators how to solve an energy crisis. However, by the time that we made this simulation and took us hundreds of years to find it all out that we were living in the simulation, we could have been spending all of that time finding the solution for global warming and the problem. And that's going to take us into video games. This theory is even putting some of the reasoning on video games. According to Vulture.com, Elon Musk is a believer in Nick Bostrom's simulation hypothesis, which posits that if humanity can survive long enough to create technology capable of running convincing simulations of reality, it will create many such simulations, and therefore there will be lots of simulated realities and only be one base reality. So statistically, it's probable that we're likely living in a simulation right now. Now that's not all. 40 years ago today, we had Pong, two rectangles and a dot. Now, 40 years later, we have photorealistic 3D with millions of, of people playing simultaneously. If you assume any rate of improvement at all, then the games will become indistinguishable from reality, even if that rate of advancement drops by 1,000 from what it is now. It's a given that we're clearly on a trajectory that we're going to have games that are indistinguishable from reality. It would seem to follow that the odds were in base reality is in one in one billion. So we are now taking the technological achievements and advancements in video games and graphics and putting them into claims that we are living in a simulation. Now let's take a look at some of the theory's counter arguments. This one especially has so many when there are so many claims as to why the conspiracy is true. Number one, we can't just take the claim that because video games are getting better that we are living in a simulation. Number two, we cannot make the claim that just because they could encode malicious software into strands of DNA that we live in a simulation. If this is the case, why hasn't someone used that to break the simulation? Number three, if we were truly living in a simulation, wouldn't the creators make it to where no one would want to question the simulation? That would mean that no questions would be asked about reality, meaning we wouldn't have the theory. And number four, if we were truly living in a simulation, wouldn't there be glitches? I'm going to end that there. We may get back into this in a future episode. And that is going to wrap up today's episode. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure you rate us five stars and subscribe. I'm Chase. That was episode one of season four, the simulation hypothesis. Now it's season four, episode two, the harp theories. And in that episode, we discuss the many conspiracies surrounding the uh, base in Fairbanks, Alaska, known as harp. That has been accused of many, many different conspiracy theories. Sabden here to welcome you to season four. Welcome back to another episode of Conspiracies with Chase. In today's episode, we'll be going back and discussing the famous program in Fairbanks, Alaska, known as harp. Let's get started. Before we can talk about the conspiracy, you must know about the base, and this base is very familiar to conspiracies we chase. If you've listened to the Alaskan Mind Control episode, then you know the base. Um, the program goes by HARP, which stands for High Frequency Active Auroral Research Program. The program is run in Fairbanks, Alaska, and is the source of many conspiracies. It seems like the base is a safe explanation for theories. The base is used for scientific purposes aimed at studying the effects of the ionosphere. 
The ionosphere is the layer of the Earth's atmosphere that contains a high concentration of ions and free electrons that can reflect radio waves. According to Britannica.com, because of the ionosphere's significance for radio communications, in the early 1990s, the U.S. Air Force and U.S. Navy proposed the HART project, and the Air Force began construction in 1993. The site near Gakona was chosen because it was an area of flat ground that was in the North Polar region where auroras occur. Responsibility of HARP switched to the University of Fairbanks, Alaska on August 11, 2015, allowing HARP to continue with exploration of ionospheric phenomenology via a land use cooperative research and development agreement that came from harp.gi.alaska.edu. Harp radio waves heat the electrons and create small perturbations that are similar to the kinds of interactions that happen in nature. Natural phenomena are random and are often difficult to observe. With harp, scientists can control when and where the perturbations occur so they can measure their effects. In addition, they can repeat experiments to confirm the measurements show what researchers think they do. That also came from harp.gi.alaska.edu. The base itself looks pretty scary and is probably the reason why there are so many conspiracies surrounding it. The land that the base is built on is still owned by the United States Air Force, however it just is run by a different program. And now we can get into the weather theories. The first conspiracy being that weather can be controlled there. Back in 2012, many natural disasters occurred. Some examples of these are the deadly floods in China to the massive forest fires in Turkey. These events were blamed on HARP and claimed that HARP had the power to control the weather and affected how that happened. The base was also blamed for the Haitian quake of 2010. However, it was the slippage of a previously unmapped fault along the border of the Caribbean and North American tectonic plates. According to Gaia, Critics of HARP assert that it can send microwave radiation beneath the ground, strategically pinpointing fault lines, and that the size of HARP's fields of antennas has the potential for tremendous damage to the environment, as, unlike other ionosphere research centers across the world, only HARP can focus the energy from the field onto a specific spot in the atmosphere. An old article from Newswatch Canada says that HARP also has the weather manipulation capability. For instance, differential heating of specific areas of the atmosphere could cause local adverse weather conditions such as floods, droughts, or even sea squalls, all of which could offer a military tactical advantage. In addition, in the spring of 1993, the Federal Aviation Administration, or the FAA, began to advise commercial pilots on how to avoid the large amount of intentional and some unintentional radiation that HARP would generate. That same article claims that one surprise might occur if anyone investigates HARP and finds it violates the 1977 Environmental Modification Convention, which bans any hostile use of environmental modification. Now let's go into the counter-argument of that theory. According to ScienceNewsForStudents.org, weather modification of a sort has been possible since the 40s. We can now cause some clouds to dump extra moisture on demand. People have also begun to transform the weather in an unintentional way through activities that have been altering Earth's climate. 
There is even a debate over whether programs should be developed to undo such changes with geoengineering. Cloud seeding, according to NewScientist.com, is the idea to spray a powder, normally silver iodine, into clouds. Each particle acts as a seed for an ice crystal, which grows around it and then falls as precipitation. Also from NewScientist.com, however, despite decades of research, it has been difficult to show that cloud seeding works. Experimenters have compared what happens to clouds that are seeded with those that aren't, but it hasn't been possible to get a large enough sample size to control for natural changes. We can, well, we can somewhat control the way clouds work. However, that is very difficult because of their conditions. There's no proof that shows that we can control the tectonic plates to start an earthquake. And we can move on to another conspiracy surrounding the Columbia shuttle. The next theory claims that HARP was behind the malfunction of the Columbia Space Shuttle crash in 2003. According to Space.com, the Columbia mission was the second space shuttle disaster after Challenger, which saw a catastrophic failure during the launch in 86. The Columbia disaster directly led to the retirement of the space shuttle fleet in 2011. The Columbia was the first space shuttle to fly in outer space. It completed 27 missions while it was active. During its last mission, the shuttle was focused on the construction of the International Space Station. From Space.com, during the crew's 16 days in space, NASA investigated a foam strike that took place during launch. About 82 seconds after Columbia left the ground, a piece of foam fell from a bipod ramp that was a part of the structure that attached to the external tank to the shuttle. Video from the launch appeared to show the foam striking Columbia's left wing. It was later found that a hole in the left wing allowed atmospheric gases to bleed into the shuttle as it went through its fiery re-entry, leading to the loss of the sensors and eventually Columbia itself and the astronauts inside. Also from Gaia, radio engineer Marshall Smith, who is monitoring HARP on the fateful day of flight STS-107's demise, backs up this claim contending that HARP was, quote, operating in missile defense mode starting about 90 minutes before Columbia's re-entry and then for about 90 minutes afterwards. And from MysteriousUniverse.org, their report describes HARP as a device that could destroy the electronics of an aircraft, spacecraft, or missile in the upper atmosphere. While the site remains open to other explanations, it rejects the accuracy of the official story and posits that, quote, if any other source for such an EMP or electromagnetic pulse effect exists, it is currently unknown to this investigation. Just wait for this next claim. According to the week.co.uk, it is not clear why the U.S. would have targeted one of its spacecraft, but according to Mysterious Universe, Marshall Smith, an ex-NASA engineer, believes it was a terrorist act performed by Al-Qaeda through a graduate student with an F-1 student visa. Let's move to that counter-argument. After the disaster, NASA did an investigation to see what exactly and why it happened. According to Space.com, an investigation board determined that a large piece of foam fell from the shuttle's external tank and breached the spacecraft wing. This disaster was so catastrophic that it caused the retirement of the space shuttle fleet in 2011. Also, a question that I have and couldn't seem to answer. Why would the U.S. shoot down one of its own spaceships? That is going to wrap up today's episode. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure to like it and rate it five stars. Next week, we will get into a new series. More on that next week. And I am Chase Abden, logging...
That was episode two of Conspiracies with Chase, season four, of course. And now we're going on to episode three, Mythology Part One. And that was a new series that was started this season. This series was talking about different stories in Greek mythology. And that episode just had a bunch of different small gods. Let's get started with that. Off, reminding you that we are back. Welcome back to Conspiracies with Chase. Today we'll be starting a new series. This series will talk about all of the stories in Greek mythology. Today we will start the portion of Greek gods. Let's get started. Today our gods of discussion are Achilles, Adonis, Adrestia, Aeolus, and Ethir. Also, since there are so many parts of mythology, some parts may be shortened to fit every part. First up is Achilles, who was a Greek river god. Achilles was the first river god of the eponymous river. The eponymous river is the largest and most important river in Greece, and he was originally thought to be the descendants of Tethys and Oceanus. Achilles has two primary images, both were either a gray-haired old man or a bearded young man. One of the famous tales about Achilles was when he was defeated by Hercules while competing to win over the river nymph Dianair. According to GreekMythology.com, the rivalry between Achilles and Hercules was depicted on various Acarnanian coins as a statue that was found in Olympia and on the throne of Immacle. During the battle, Achilles transformed himself into a bull, but Hercules managed to tear off one of his horns, making him surrender. Achilles was forced to trade the horn of Amalthea to get it back. The horn of Amalthea was then given to the Neods by Hercules, who transformed it into the cornucopia, a container full of fruit, vegetables, and other produce. Moving from Achilles to Adonis, Adonis was the Greek god of beauty and desire. According to Greek mythology, originally he was a god worshipped in the area of Phoenicia, or modern-day Lebanon, but was later adopted by the Greeks. According to the most popular belief, he was the son of Theus, or king of Syria, and Myra, also known as Theus's daughter. Also from Greek mythology, Aphrodite protected him and appointed Persephone to fall in love with him too. Persephone refused to give Adonis back to Aphrodite. This led to a dispute that was solved by Zeus. As a result, Adonis would spend a third of a year with each goddess and one third with whoever he wanted. He chose to spend two thirds with Aphrodite. The death? Adonis was jealous of Artemis because of his hunting ability. Artemis ended up sending a wild boar who eventually killed Adonis. An alternate version of the story includes that the boar was sent by Ares. Moving on to Adrestia, in Greek mythology, Adrestia was a minor deity of revolt and equilibrium. She was both good and bad. Adrestia was the daughter of Ares and Aphrodite. She was often seen following her father into battles or next to Nemesis, goddess of divine retribution. Moving on to Aeolus. Aeolus was the name given to three different mythical creatures. It was hard to tell the creatures apart, but it is most known as the son of Hippotus, the keeper of the wind. According to Greek mythology, Aeolus gave Odysseus a closed bag that contained all winds, but for the gentle west wind that would take him home. However, Odysseus's companions, thinking that the bag contained riches, opened the bag and the winds escaped, blowing the ship in all directions and thus extending their voyage back home. 
Also from GreekMythology.com, another Aeolus was the son of Helen and Orsis and ruler of Aeolia. He married Enari, with whom he had numerous children, including Sisyphus, Athamas, Cretheus, and the Salmonius. Finally, the third character with the name was the son of Poseidon and Arne, and was often indistinguishable from the first Aeolus, Keeper of the Winds. And next up is Ether, who is the primordial god of light and sky. According to Greeks, gods, and goddesses.net, Aether's mists were able to fill the space between the transparent mists on the ground and the solid dome that made up the sky. Air on the earth was governed by primordial goddess Chaos, but all of the air above was Aether's domain. His parents were Erbius and Nyx. This god didn't take the shape of a animal or human, and it was seen as literally the space. Heather was one of the first gods in Greek mythology. According to GreekGodsAndGoddesses.net, these first gods are called primordial gods because these first deities came from empty space. This nothingness or void is called chaos in Greek. Later, from chaos, several deities were And that is going to wrap up today's episode. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you give it a five-star rating and a thumbs up. Next week, we will be discussing Agatha Demon, Algea, Alpheus, Amphitrite, and Anaki. Thanks for listening. I'm Chase Abden telling you that was episode three of Conspiracies with Chase season four, the mythology part one, and now it's time for episode four being the Illuminati. And in that episode, it was the episode that everyone was waiting for. It was the Illuminati and just discussing their conspiracies, what they do, their symbols, and just stuff like that to buy some merch. Welcome back to another episode of Conspiracies with Chase. This is a highly requested episode, and it is finally the time that we start discussing the Illuminati. Let's get started. Before we get started, we need to know who exactly the Illuminati is and why they are so important. According to Britannica.com, Illuminati designation in use from the 15th century assumed by or applied to various groups of persons who claim to be unusually enlightened. On May 1st, 1776, Adam Weishaupt, a professor of law at the University of Ingolstadt, founded the Order of the Illuminati. The Illuminati was a secret organization formed to oppose religious influence on society and the abuse of power by the state by fostering a safe space for critique, debate, and free speech. Weishaupt was inspired by the Freemasons and by the French Enlightenment philosophers, and he believed that society should no longer be dictated by religions. According to BBC, he wanted to create a state of liberty and moral equality where knowledge was not restricted by religious prejudice. Also from BBC, after initially handpicking his five most talented law students to join, the network rapidly expanded, its members decimating Weishaupt's goals of enlightenment with radical teachings, while at the same time creating an elaborate network of informants who reported on the behavior of state and religious figures in an effort to build up a wealth of information that the Illuminati could potentially exploit in their teachings. With the help of a prominent German diplomat, Baron Adolf Franz Friedrich Freiherr von Nigi, who helped recruit Freemason lodges to the Illuminati cause, the clandestine group grew to more than 2,000 members throughout Bavaria, France, Hungary, Italy, and Poland, among other places. The Illuminati was never meant to be noticed, keep that in mind. In an interview with BBC, 
Michael Klarner, a local reporter, told BBC that he liked the idea of teaching people to be better human beings. He wanted to change society. He was dreaming of a better world, of a better government. He started the Illuminati with the idea that everything known to humankind should be taught, something that was not allowed here at the university. Adam based his society off of the Freemasons and had a hierarchy of mysterious rituals and named it the Order of the Illuminati to reflect the enlightened ideals of his educated members. According to Vox, they used symbols like the owl, adopted pseudonyms to avoid identification, and had complicated hierarchies like novice, mineral, and illuminated mineral that divided the ranks. To become a member, there were 13 degrees of initiation required, as you had to have full consent from the other members, possess wealth, and have good reputation within a suitable family. According to HistoryExtra.com, however, the rituals we do know about, found in C's secret papers, explain how novices could be moved to a higher level within the Illuminati's hierarchy. They had to complete a report on all the books they owned, write a list of their weaknesses, and reveal the names of any enemies they had. The novice would then promise to sacrifice personal interests for the good of the society. According to ADL.com, New World Order conspiracists believe that the tyrannical socialist One World Conspiracy has already taken over most of the planet and schemes to common eliminate the last basin of freedom, the United States, with the help of collaborators within the government. And according to Wikipedia, the common theme in conspiracy theories about a New World Order is that a secretive power elite with a globalist agenda is conspiring to eventually rule the world through an authoritarian One World Government which will replace all sovereign nation-states, and an all-encompassing propaganda whose ideology hails the establishment of the New World Order as the accumulation of history progresses. And now we move on to the symbols, and this information I was able to find from the IlluminatiumSociety.com. The Pyramid and the tenets of the Illuminati, wealth is not simply a means of personal enrichment. Instead, money is a tool that can be used to fulfill each person's duty to the advancement of the human species. The eye. The human has made itself this planet's most dominant and advanced species. Even the weakest human is born master of the strongest of all other species on Earth. Through natural selection, every human generation. The light. Given many names by spiritual leaders and unexplainable by science, the light is an invisible guide that many believe has led them to joy, success, and lives of abundance. It communicates directly to every human being. The Eternal Circle Every generation inherits the world left by one before it, just as a king inherits the crown of his father. Your pursuit of wisdom and goodness could only lay the foundation of your great-great-grandchild's rise to power. Also from the IlluminatiumSociety.com The Illuminati is not a church, religion, political group, or charity organization, but an elite collective group of global influencers who work to further the interests of the human species as a whole. Our decisions are independent of all human divisions, including religious and political differences. We operate solely for the benefit of the human species and we have been entrusted to protect and therefore make no demands of our citizens regarding personal worship, morality, or belief. Now a question I've been asked a lot is does the Illuminati control the world? And sources say that many historians believe that the Illuminati was at best mildly successful in becoming influential. According to Vox, in 1785, Duke of Bavaria Karl Theodore banned secret societies, including the Illuminati, and instituted serious punishments for anyone who joined them. Most of the group's secrets were disclosed or published, and if he believed 
most historians, the Illuminati disappeared. One thing that I have noticed while doing research on the Illuminati is that information around it is very limited, including conspiracies. That is going to wrap up today's episode. If you enjoyed it, make sure you like it and give it five stars. Join us next week when we begin another new series on Conspiracies with Chase. Join us then to find out. That was episode four of season four, and episode five is the beginning of the Urban Myths and Legends International series. And in that first one, we talked about just different countries, just like we've been doing, and it went pretty well what it is. Thanks for listening. I'm Chase Abden with Conspiracies with Chase, reminding you to subscribe to our blog. Welcome back to another episode of Conspiracies with Chase. In today's episode, we'll be starting another new series. This one is Urban Myths and Legends International. In this series, we'll be discussing urban legends from countries around the world. Let's get started. One quick note before we get started is that these two series, being Urban Myths and Legends International and Mythology, these are not going to be every single episode back to back. These are going to be like one episode every now and again. That is because I feel like both you guys and me would get tired of it. And today's countries of discussion are Mexico, China, Japan, Honduras, and Canada. And our first country in this new series is Mexico, and their urban legend is Chupacabra. The Chupacabra is a popular legend in Latin America. It is a monstrous creature that attacks animals and consumes their blood. This creature is the southern version of the Sasquatch. The name is derived from the Spanish word chuper to suck and cabra, goat, and can be translated as goat sucker, according to Britannica. Also from Britannica, Chupacabras were first reported in 1995 in Puerto Rico where they were blamed for the attacks on goats, sheep, and other domestic animals, supposedly leaving uneaten carcasses that were drained of blood. Early reports resemble a large reptilian kangaroo with red glowing eyes. Other reports claim seeing a creature the size of a small bear. Others claim to see the creature having spines down its back. Whichever it is, it sounds terrifying. While no actual specimens were found, reports have been spotted throughout the Americas. Some people have been spending their entire lives dedicated to trying to find proof or even capture a chupacabra. According to AllThatInteresting.com, her name was Madeline Tolentino, and she had seen the chupacabra through a window at her home in Canavanas, a town east of San Juan in 1995. A bipedal creature with black eyes, reptilian skin, and spines down its back, she claimed, was responsible for the animal attacks that were becoming so commonplace in the country. She said it hopped like a kangaroo and reeked of sulfur. In that same article, I found a possible counter-argument for the legend. For years, chupacabras have only been stuff of folklore and internet conspiracy theories. Then came the bodies. In the early 2000s in Texas and elsewhere in the southwestern United States, people started finding dead bodies resembling the Chupacabra's description. Hairless, four-legged creatures with burnt-looking skin. About a dozen have turned up since then. Farmers and ranchers called the authorities having no idea what these creatures could have been, but it turns out the answer is pretty simple. They were mostly dogs and coyotes. The reason these animals get identified as Chupacabras is because they've lost their hair owing to sarcoptic mange, Radford explained. Sarcoptic mange, a highly contagious skin disease fairly common in dogs, focuses its sufferers to itch away at mites burrowing under their skin. The skin ultimately loses its hair and becomes abnormally thick, and then the itching produces nasty-looking scabs. 
all of that information also came from allthatinteresting.com. We're now switching from Mexico and moving to the Asian country of China. China's urban legend is the monstrous Mongolian deathworm. This creature is said to live in the Gobi Desert, and the worm is said to be red in color, between 2 to 5 feet long, and as thick as a man's arm. Although the common size is 2 to 5 feet, some claim that they can grow to be much larger than that, which would make this worm even more terrifying. Sometimes referred to as the intestine worm because of its rigid intestine-like appearance, this cryptid is greatly feared by locals due to its highly toxic or possibly acid-like venom, according to thatsbags.com. From local beliefs, the death worm has the ability to spray its venom from a decent distance. The poisonous substance is supposedly enough to kill a camel or a horse. Also from thatsbags.com, according to believers who note that Many areas near the China-Mongolia border are difficult to access or restricted and that the deathworm spends most of its year underground, only surfacing when it rains, which is just about two months a year. Not moving too far from China, it's time for Japan's urban legend. Japan's urban legend is Kuchisaka Ona, or the slit mouth Woman. Kuchisake Ona is a very vengeful ghost and appears as a beautiful woman who roams the streets at night. This woman wears a face mask and carries a concealed pair of scissors. This is important to her story coming up. According to an.japantravel.com, if you are unlucky enough to meet Kuchisaka Ona during a stroll, she will ask you if you think she is beautiful. As with Ekamanto, consider your answer like your life depends on it, since it actually does. If you say no, she will immediately murder you with her scissors. If you say yes, she will remove her face covering to reveal a gaping mouth that has been slit from ear to ear in a haunting smile. Then she will ask you again. Say no, and you die. But stick with yes, and she will slit your mouth like hers. The only way to escape her is to tell her that she looks average. I'm going to leave that urban legend right there. Moving back from the other side of the planet, it's time for Honduras. This urban legend is called the Sinaguava. The only thing that I can find about this urban legend comes from LifePersona.com. According to that website, it is the story of a very pretty girl who appears near a river at midnight before men who betray their wives or girlfriends. She loves and loves them, but when they accept the innuendo, she becomes an ogre. And the last destination for today's episode is Canada. Canada's urban legend is the burning ship in Northumberland Strait. According to Wikipedia.org, in Canadian ghost lore, the ghost ship of Northumberland Strait is a ghost ship set to sail ablaze within the Northumberland Strait, the body of water that separates Prince Edward Island from Nova Scotia and New Brunswick in eastern Canada. More encounters have been described from FoxHarbor.com. Quote, the ghost ship has been accounted for in print for more than a century, with New Brunswick scientist William Francis Gannon writing a sober-minded account of it in the 1905 Bulletin of the Natural History Society of New Brunswick. That journal reads, in its usual form, the light is roughly hemispherical. It has its flat side to the water, and at times it simply glows without much change of form, but at other times it rises into slender moving columns, giving rise to an appearance capable of interpretation as the flaming rigging of a ship, its vibrating and dancing movements creasing the illusion, its origin is probably electrical. More fanciful accounts of the ghost ship are attested into Roland H. Sherwood's 1948 story Parade, 
a book about the legends of the Maritimes in which he claims the ship has been seen for at least 200 years. A fairly long description can also be found in Helen Champion's travel book, Over on the Island, published in 1939. These two books seem to have built up on the popularity of the ship, and the ghost ship started to be accounted for regularly in newspapers from the 50s onwards. Sherwood even returned to the subject in his 1975 book, Phantom Ship of the Northumberland Strait and Other Mysteries of the Sea. And that is going to wrap up today's episode. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure you like, subscribe, and rate us five stars. Join us next week on Conspiracies with Chase when we discuss the Philadelphia Experiment. Thanks for listening. I'm Chase Abden with Conspiracies with Chase, welcoming you. That was episode five of season four, Urban Myths and Legends International. And now it's time for episode six, the Philadelphia Experiment. And that episode was the U.S. military conspiracy that tried turning ships invisible, and it didn't really work out that very well. Here it is, to the new series. Welcome back to another episode of Conspiracies with Chase. In today's episode, we'll be discussing a fairly famous conspiracy in the U.S. military known as the Philadelphia Experiment. Let's get started. On October 28, 1943, a ship named the USS Eldridge, which was a common cannon-class destroyer escort, was working on a top-secret experiment designed to win command of the oceans against the Axis powers. According to Military.com, the rumor was that the government was creating technology that would render naval ships invisible to enemy radar, and there in the Philadelphia Naval Shipyard, it was time to test it out. According to People.HowStuffWorks.com, it was the summer of 1943, two years into the United States' involvement in World War II, and a bloody sea battle was raging between American destroyers and the famed U-boat submarines of the Nazis. In the Philadelphia shipyard, a newly commissioned destroyer called the USS Eldridge was being equipped with several large generators as part of a top-secret mission to win the Battle of the Atlantic once and for all. Some witnesses claimed to have seen an eerie green-blue glow surrounding the hull of the ship. It was spotted in Norfolk Naval Shipyard in Virginia before disappearing and being found again in Philadelphia. The legend states that classified military documents reported that the Eldridge crew were affected by the events in disturbing ways. Some went insane, others developed mysterious illnesses, but others were said to have been fused together with the ship, still alive but with limbs sealed to the metal. That came from Military.com. In one of those documents, as mentioned above, a witness told the writer what he saw. This is what he had to say. Please note that these quotes that come from the document are in rough condition and have been you know, modified to make them seem more sense and more easy to be read. I watched it, I saw it, observed its birth, growth, and action, and reaction upon the vehicle to which the superfield was being applied. The document also says that sailors were said to have been affected by the field to such an extent that some went insane. Others developed mysterious illnesses. Two of the sailors have vanished from a local base under conditions that left the waitresses terrified and confused. Not only did the ship become invisible, but it was teleported to Norfolk, returning to Philadelphia in an impossibly short period of time. During its period of invisibility, online ideology claimed the U.S. military was able to contact alien entities with whom they established cooperation with. 
To sum all of that information up, it was rumored that the generators attached to the ship were designed to power a new kind of magnetic field that would make the warship invisible to enemy radar. The generators were turned on in the middle of the day, out in the open, with the full crew on board. After that, witnesses claimed to have seen a glow emerging from the ship. After a few minutes, the ship disappeared. So the ship disappeared, reappeared in Norfolk, and then disappeared again, reappearing in Philadelphia. After the ship reappeared in Philadelphia, it was reported that the crew on the ship was suffering from terrible burns and disorientation. Quote, Most shockingly, a few crewmen were found partially embedded in the steel hull of the ship, still alive, but with legs or arms sealed to the deck, according to people.howstuffworks.com. With all of that information, it's now time to focus on the counter-argument of the Philadelphia experiment. According to history.navy.military, some researchers have erroneously concluded that degaussing has a connection with making an object invisible. Degaussing is a process in which a system of electrical cables are installed around the circumference of a ship's hull, running from bow to stern on both sides. A measured electrical current is passed through these cables to cancel out the ship's magnetic field. Degaussing equipment was installed in the hull of the Navy ships and could be turned on whenever the ship was in waters that might contain magnetic mines, usually shallow waters and combat areas. It could be said that degaussing, correctly done, makes a ship invisible to the sensors of magnetic mines, but the ship remains visible to the human eye, radar, and underwater listening devices. After many years of searching, the staff of the archives and independent researchers have not located any official documents that support the assertion that an invisibility or teleportation experiment involving a Navy ship occurred at Philadelphia or at any other location. And that is going to wrap up today's episode. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure you give it a thumbs up and rate us five stars. Make sure you subscribe and check out Conspiracies with Chase on all of our social media platforms. Join us next week when we'll be discussing the cure for cancer. Thanks for listening. I'm Chase Abden with Conspiracies with... That was episode 6 of season 4, and that was the Philadelphia Experiment. Now here's episode 7, which is the Big Pharma versus Cancer, which was saying that big pharmaceutical companies like Johnson & Johnson and stuff like that are withholding the cure for cancer just to save some money. Let's take a look at that. Chase, reminding you to rate us 5 stars. Welcome back to another episode of Conspiracies with Chase. In today's episode, we will be discussing a slightly controversial episode. Today's topic is the conspiracy that big pharmacy companies are withholding the cure for cancer just to save a couple dollars. Let's get started. It is important to know that the information provided is not mine and is words from other people. To get started, we should probably know what exactly cancer is. Cancer is a disease in which abnormal cells divide uncontrollably and destroy body tissue. There are more than 100 known cancer types, each one different from the other. Examples of cancer include bladder cancer, breast cancer, melanoma, leukemia, and more. Now let's get into the theory. The theory is actually pretty simple. It's that the big pharma is holding the cure for cancer because it is saving them money. Actually, the cancer cure conspiracy is a small part of a different and larger conspiracy known as the big pharma conspiracy theory. 
According to wikipedia.org, the Big Pharma Conspiracy Theory is a group of conspiracy theories that claim that the medical community in general, and pharmaceutical companies in particular, especially large corporations, operate for sinister purposes and against the public good, and that they conceal effective treatments or even cause and worsen a wide range of diseases for the only purpose of profitability. Big Pharma is a term used by conspiracy theorists to describe the major pharmaceutical companies, being you know, Pfizer, Johnson & Johnson, and other featured on the episode cover. Also from Wikipedia, according to Blaskovich, uh, who is a professor of writing, the Big Pharma conspiracy theory has four classic traits. First, the assumption that the conspiracy is perpetrated by a small malevolent cabal. Secondly, the belief that the public at large is ignorant of the truth. Thirdly, that its believers treat lack of evidence as evidence. And finally, that the arguments deployed in support of the theory are irrational, misconceived, or otherwise mistaken. There are also claims that there are all natural cures for serious illnesses including cancer, herpes, arthritis, AIDS, acid reflux disease, various phobias, depression, obesity, diabetes, multiple sclerosis, lupus, chronic fatigue syndrome, attention deficit disorder, muscular dystrophy, and that these are all being deliberately hidden and suppressed from the public by the Food and Drug Administration, the Federal Trade Commission, and major food and drug companies. A big claim is that the pharmaceutical companies suppress negative research about their drugs by financially pressuring researchers and journals. According to The Conspiracy Files by Leo Monion, the opponents of Big Pharma argue that medicines and treatments are becoming increasingly expensive, pointing out that ill health and disease, especially cancer, is big business. Moving on to the counter-argument, um, this conspiracy has a lot of counter-arguments, specifically more than there are evidence to support the theory. According to WorldwideCancerResearch.org, cancer is a name for a group of over 200 distinct diseases. Types of cancer can vary considerably in their causes and the way in which they grow and spread. The sheer complexity of cancer makes it a single cure incredibly unlikely. Also from the same website, even if a potential silver bullet existed, it would take decades to test it on each type and stage of cancer. This kind of testing requires vast amounts of money. What would the benefit of hiding the cure be? Big pharmaceutical companies invest billions of dollars in development of new drugs. If one of them had struck gold and found a magic bullet, they'd want to claim those expenses back. I'm going to leave today's episode here. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you like, follow, and rate 5 stars. Join us next week. And we've made it all the way to Season 4, Episode 8. And in this episode, it was the second addition to the mythology series, which has talked about, I think it was some more stories. Here it is. When we will continue chasing conspiracies. Welcome back to another episode of Conspiracies with Chase. In today's episode, we will continue our mythology series. Today, we'll be switching gears and talking about Greek creatures. These creatures today will include Argus Panoptes, Arian, the Ash Tree Nymphs, the Centaur, and Cerberus. Let's get started.
Argus Panopes was the name of a hundred-eyed giant. He was the son of Arister. His name, Panopes, meant the all-seeing one. According to GreekMythology.com, he was the servant of Hera. One of the tasks that were given to him was to slay the fearsome monster Echidna, wife of Typhon, which he successfully completed. According to Britannica, Argus was appointed by the goddess Hera to watch the cow into which Io had been transformed, but he was slain by Hermes, who is called Argyphontus, slayer of Argus in the Homeric poems. Next is Arian, who was the name of an immortal horse bred by the gods. According to GreekGodsAndGoddesses.net, in the myth of Heracles, Heracles takes Arian from Ancus, a son of Apollo who raised horses in a grove near the ocean. Demeter had been hiding there from Poseidon, but Poseidon found her and sired Arian. Arian then ran with the herd, having attained Arian from Ancus. Heracles then rode Arian during the war against Elans. Because of Arian, Heracles did win that war. Afterward, Heracles gave Arian to Adrastus, king of Argos, who over time became the immortal horse's most famous owner. Arian intervened on behalf of Adrastus during the defeat of Argives, making Adrastus the only Argive leader to survive. During the same battle, the writers Aediocles and Polynices kill each other over who would claim the throne at Thebes. And now on to the Ash Tree Nymphs. According to GreekMythology.com, the Ash Tree Nymphs, or Meliae, were created by the blood that fell on the earth when the titan Cronus castrated his father Uranus in his effort to overthrow him. Along with the Meliae came the Arianes, the furries, and the giants. The mankind of the Bronze Age originated from the Meliae. From GreekGodsAndGoddesses.net, the ash tree nymphs were wed by the men of the Silver Age, a time before the first woman, and it is from them that all mankind is descended. They are the mothers of the Age of Bronze, mankind's third generation. It is said that the sons were nursed from the honey of their mothers, and they would craft spears from their mothers' branches. Moving on to the centaur in Greek mythology, the centaur was a race of creatures, part horse and part man, dwelling in the mountains of Thessaly and Arcadia. According to Britannica, centaurs may be best explained as the creation of a folktale in which wild inhabitants of the mountains and savage spirits of the forests were combined in half-human, half-animal form. In early art, they were portrayed as human beings in front, with the body and hind legs of a horse attached to the back. Later, they were only men, only as far as the waist. They fought using rough branches of trees as weapons. Here's a short passage about the centaur provided by Study.com. The legend of the centaurs began with a people called the Lapiths, a mythical tribe who lived in the central Greek region of the Thessaly. The king of Lapiths, Ixion, fell in love with the goddess Hera, wife of Zeus. Rather than just smitting Ixion, Zeus decided to trick him. Zeus took a cloud and shaped it to look like Hera, gave it life, and called her Nephil. Ixion mistook Nephil for Hera and consummated his love. As a result, Nephil got pregnant and gave birth to a deformed child named Centaurus. 
cast out, Centaurus lived in the wilds of Thessaly and mated with the wild mares of the forest. From these unicorns and half-man, half-horse centaurs were created. That's the mythical origins of the centaurs. Historians have different stories of the stories' origins. The region of Thessaly was beyond the influence of Greek city-states such as Athens when the Greeks formed and settled urban civilizations. Thus, it had a reputation among the Greeks as a barbarous place. The inhabitants of Thessaly were migratory, coming from West Asia and relying on wild or domesticated horses to hunt. The theory is that these bareback horse-riding groups in Greece were mistaken for mythical creatures as the rider and horse seemed to move as one. For the Greeks, who saw non-urban populations as uncivilized and nearly animalistic, the connection would not have made hard to make. Next up is Cerberus. In Greek mythology, Cerberus is a multi-headed dog that guards the gates of the underworld to prevent the dead from leaving, and it was also known as the Hound of Hades. A quote from Britannica that helps describe Cerberus is, He was usually said to have three heads, though the poet Hesiod said he had fifty. Heads of snakes grew from his back, and he had a serpent's tail. He devoured anyone who tried to escape the kingdom of Hades, the lord of the underworld, and who refused entrance to living humans. Though the mythic hero Orpheus gained passage by charming him with music, one of the labors of the warrior Heracles was to bring Cerberus up to the land of the living. After succeeding, he returned to the creature of Hades. That is going to wrap up today's episode. If you enjoyed it, make sure you like, comment, and maybe rate five stars. Join us next week when we'll continue with our Urban Myths and Legends International Series. Thanks for listening. I'm Chase Abden with Conspiracy. And lastly, it was Season 4, Episode 9, the second edition to the Urban Myths and Legends International Series. Here it is. This is with Chase, reminding you have a good day. Welcome back to another episode of Conspiracies with Chase. In today's episode, we'll be continuing our Urban Myths and Legends International series. This episode will have legends from Brazil, France, India, Venezuela, and Ghana. Let's get started. First up on our list is Brazil with Kuka. Kuka is a name given to an old witch in which people say that she terrifies all babies in Brazil. According to FolkloreThursday.com, Kuka is a hag who lives in a cave and makes all sorts of spells using her cauldron. She's a humanoid, crocodile-like woman with a very shrill voice. Parents of children in Brazil sing of the Kuka in a lullaby. Sleepy little baby, Kuka is coming to get you. Daddy went to the fields, mommy went to our job. Also from Folklore Thursday, Kuka became extremely popular after Montero Lovato's books narrating the Chronicles of the Yellow Woodpecker Farm, released between 1920 and 1940. In these books, Kuka is the main villain and she works alongside other Brazilian folklore creatures. Kuka is able to enter anywhere and she kidnaps children and eats them, absorbing their vital energy and prolonging hers. Next up on our list is France, and we are going to talk about the kidney thieves. The following story is provided by discoverywalks.com. 
One day, a Parisian man drank himself silly and stumbled home, leaving his front door unlocked. He woke up the following day naked in his bathtub surrounded by ice. Next to the tub was a cell phone and a note that said, Do not move and call an ambulance immediately. There was also champagne and a health insurance reimbursement. The ambulance confirmed one of his kidneys had been removed and he was offered free hospital coverage and surgery as compensation. He was also put at the top of the donor list due to the unconventional circumstances. Somehow, the man received a kidney match that same day. Suspiciously, doctors confirmed that the donor kidney was in fact the kidney he had lost the night prior. He had also received 30,000 euros compensation from the health reimbursement. He later died slipping on a pile of dog poop and his last words were, no one will ever believe this. That is going to end our story with France and we're not going to move on to India and discuss the monkey man. The only thing I can find about the monkey man is that it is a hairy creature about five feet tall with shining red eyes and a helmet. According to IndiaTimes.com, it was seen jumping from building to building, but was just described as mass hysteria. The film Delphi 6, starring Abhishek Mackin, centers around the appearance of the creature in Old Delphi. That is, again, the only information I could find about the monkey man. So, our fourth country on the list today is Venezuela and La Soda. La Soda is the story of Melissa, a beautiful woman who got married to a good man who was unable to hurt her. Both had a nine-month-old baby. According to LifePersona.com, Melissa used to bathe in the river, discovered by a malicious individual who spied on her very often. One day, Melissa noticed that she was being spied on and asked the individual why she did it. This one excuse lied to him, saying that he wanted to warn her and that her husband was unfaithful to her own mother. Melissa believed him and ran to her house and died of jealousy, setting the house on fire with her husband and the baby inside. He then went to his mother's house to claim his infidelity, which told him that this was not true. She attacked her until she was killed. And before she died, the other woman explained, I never lied to you, and you committed the worst sin, so I condemn you, Havel. The word Sayona refers to the white attire or bat that the woman uses. The stories tell that it usually appears to menacing women in form of a seductive woman or a common animal. By seducing them, asking for a cigarette, they change their appearance by a horrid one with a sharp teeth and their victims die horrified or flee in terror. The last country for today's episode is Ghana. Ghana's urban legend is the mystic stone at Larabanga. The sacred stone holds incredible power and is located in Larabanga, a village in the northern region of Ghana. According to allocation.com, the Larabanga people tell the legend of how the founder of the town was passing through the area and decided to pass the night. The men of that era were spiritually strong and would not do anything without consulting any deity that they believed in. His deity ordered him to throw his spear and use the landing place as his resting ground. It is believed that the position of the stone is where he stood to throw his spear. The stone is famous for being able to move back into position when being moved. Also from our location, it allegedly returned to its original place twice after it was moved to make space for road construction. Finally, the road had been diverted to go around it. I also believe that to have the power to heal and the power to curse. 
And that is going to wrap up today's episode. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you like, follow, and rate us five stars. Join us next week when we'll discuss the Freemasons. Thanks for listening. And while we're at it, we'll just go ahead and throw in the season finale. This was filmed and published yesterday, and if you haven't watched it, go back and watch it. But it has mythology, urban myths and legends, it's got a new series, it's got famous deaths, mini-theories, and yeah, that's just about it. Welcome back to another episode of Conspiracies with Chase. After a short pause in production, we are back to finishing out Season 4 of Conspiracies with Chase. The finale will include a little bit of everything. It will include mythology, urban myths and legends, international, and we might also include many legends, famous deaths, and a new series is going to be announced. So let's get started. To start off the finale, we are going to do part three of Urban Myths and Legends International. Today we are traveling to South Africa, Australia, Germany, Portugal, and the United Kingdom. From South Africa is the Adams Calendar. Adams Calendar, which may be the oldest man-made structure that is still in existence, was discovered in 2003 entirely by accident. According to HistoricMysteries.com, John Henney, a South African pilot, was flying above the Mpumalanga region, a hilly territory in the east of the country, when he lost control of his plane. Forced to make an unplanned landing, his plane crashed into a mountainside. Henney was miraculously unhurt and exited the plane to see three monolithic dolomite stones before him. These huge stones, weighing about 5 metric tons, converted to about 5.5 U.S. tons each, were sticking out of the ground, and next to them was a giant circle made out of stone. The whole theory and question surrounding the Adam's calendar is, did ancient South Africans craft a celestial calendar millennia before the likes of Galileo? That is going to wrap up that. We're going to move on to Australia who is proving to be terrifying with the Luna Park Ghost Train Fire. According to the Bragg.com, on June 9th, 1979, a devastating fire in Luna Park's Ghost Train Ride, said to be the result of an electrical fire, claimed the lives of seven people. Three of the victims were Damien Godson, along with his father and four-year-old brother. And what may have been for an eerie foreshadowing to the tragedy prior to their demise, the Godson family had been waiting for a ferry from Circular Quay to Sydney's Luna Park, when they were approached by a satanic-looking figure dressed in a loincloth, mask, and horned headdress. The man reportedly came up to the family, placed his hand on the six-year-old Damien's shoulder, and a photo was taken. To this day, no one knows the identity of the man dressed as the demonic figure, but some believe that the horned man resembled the god Moloch, who was asked for children to be sacrificed through fire or war, while others believe the man to be linked to a local satanic cult. That's going to end that. We're going to move on to Germany with Lorelei. And this one's going to be short as well, because it, there wasn't much I could find on it. According to culturetrip.com, according to German folklore, atop a steep rock on the Rhine River, there once lived an exquisite nymph named Lorelei. She dressed in white and wore a wreath of stars in her hair. 
Not only was her physical beauty astounding, but the sirens sang a song so haunting and hypnotizing that no sailor could resist her aura. Enticed by her song, legend has it that no sailor who tried to reach Lorelei never returned. Instead, they would meet their final fate by crashing against the dangerous rocks. Today, a statue of Lorelei watches over the treacherous stretch of water near St. Gorishajan. And the second to last country for today's urban myths and legends is Portugal with Quinta das Cancas. According to discoverwalks.com, this farm was owned by several families before Francisco Montero turned out to be its owner in 1899. Little is left of the house, but you can still see its structure, which reminds you of old colonial houses. Montero was an important producer in Sao Tome and Principe. He lived in Angola, Mozambique, and Timor. Mantero also was the founding partner of the Lisbon Geographical Society. He was the founder of the fields in Santa Margarita, Monte Macaco, Mianco, and the Sao Tome Islands of Principe, where the main exploration was cake and coffee. Despite his thriving career, Francisco Montero had a dark side. He fell in love with a native woman in the Sao Tome, whom he had a daughter with. Her beauty was not so unique that he locked her in a house in the Quinta das Conques. Was it for jealousy, for not wanting her to be seen by others? We don't know, but the woman was imprisoned in a cage. After many years of captivity, she went mad and ended up dying. It is said that one can still hear the sounds of weeping, and then they turn into cries of distress. If you're feeling curious and wish to visit this place, you need to know that it is forbidden because there's a real risk of collapse of the house, so you better keep your distances. And to wrap up the urban myths and legends is the United Kingdom with the Big Grey Man. According to CountryFile.com, what Collie had experienced was a classic case of a brush with the Big Grey Man of Ben McDewey, an enduring myth of an extremely large Sasquatch-like, gray-figured, covered in short hair. Wherever the gray man ventures, he's accompanied by a sense of irrational panic and dread. Although Kali vowed never to return to the mountain alone, saw nothing. Kali, by the way, was a man who went to a mountain in the UK and had a contact with the big gray man. He vowed to never return to the mountain alone, and he saw nothing. Others were not so lucky. In October of 1943, while on 10 days' leave, soldier Alexander Tunyon reached the summit of the mountain and immediately noticed in the whirling mist that the atmosphere became dark and oppressive. A fierce, bitter wind whisked among the boulders, and an odd sound echoed through the mist. A loud footstep, it seemed, then another, and then another. A strange shape loomed up, receded, and came charging at me. Without hesitation, I whipped out the revolver and fired three times at the figure. When it came on, I turned and hared down the path. More rational minds point to a possible explanation for the terrifying sightings. The Brocken Spectre, a rare atmospheric effect caused by the projection of your shadow onto mist and cloud, sometimes accompanied by a rainbow halo called a glory. Brock inspectors have been sometimes been witnessed on Ben Macdu when conditions have been right, but why it might be the cause of the fear that overcomes experienced climbers and scientists. 
Could the terror be the manifestation of an ancestral memory of hominids from a thousand generations ago, or is it the mind's response to isolation and exhaustion? Could it be the place's essential spirit? Is it genius Loki? Sometimes unknowable and so much larger than ourselves that our mind struggles to comprehend and replaces with the avatar of a monster or a spectral presence? Or is it a fluke of the landscape that produces infrasound and other sensory data just out of our reach? What dreadful spirit stalks the lonely mountain or on Ben Macdo? And if it's specific to the place, are there any other places that inspire such fear on these islands of ours? That's going to wrap up the urban myths and legends portion of tonight's uh, finale. Now it's time to talk about mythology, and part three of the mythology series is going to be a big one. It's going to include Zeus, Poseidon, Hades, and the story of Pandora's box. First up, was considered the biggest and most important god in Greek mythology is Zeus. Zeus was a sky and weather god who is identical to the Roman god Jupiter. Zeus was regarded as the sender of thunder and lightning, rain, and winds, and his traditional weapon was the thunderbolt. According to Britannica.com, as ruler of heaven, Zeus led the gods to victory against the giants, and successfully crushed several revolts against him by his fellow gods. According to the Greek poet Homer, Heaven was located on the summit of Olympus, the highest mountain in Greece. It was a logical home for a weather god. The other members of the pantheon resided there with Zeus and were subject to his will. From his exalted position atop Mount Olympus, Zeus was thought to omnisciently observe the affairs of men, seeing everything, governing all, rewarding good conduct, and punishing evil. Besides depending justice, he had a strong connection with his daughter, uh, Dyke, or Justice. Zeus was the protector of cities, the home, property, strangers, guests, and supplicants. That's going to end him, and we're going to go on to Poseidon, who's the god of the sea. He's also known to be a violent and ill-tempered god. He was one of the twelve Olympians and was also feared as the provoker of earthquakes and worshipped as the creator of the horse. According to Theo.com, at birth, Poseidon was swallowed whole by his father Kronos. But Zeus later enlisted the aid of the goddess Metis, who fed the titan a magical elixir, causing him to disgorge the god. During the War of Titans, the Cyclops crafted a magical trident for Poseidon, and together with his brothers Zeus and Hades, he defeated Elder Gods and imprisoned them in the Tartars. Poseidon and his brothers drew lots for the division of Cosmos after the fall of Titans and won the sea as his domain. When the giants beside the gods of Olympus, Poseidon crushed Polybots beneath the island of Kos. He entered a contest with goddess Athena for the dominion over Athens and produced very first horse as a gift. But the king refused him the prize in anger. Poseidon afflicted the land with drought. The god assaulted his sister Demeter in the shape of a horse as she was wandering the earth in the search of her daughter Persephone. Next god is Hades, the god of the underworld. According to Britannica, after Cronus was overthrown by his sons, his kingdom was divided among them, and the underworld fell by a lot to Hades. There he ruled with his queen, Persephone, who over the infernal powers over the dead, that is what is called the house of Hades, or simply Hades. He was aided by the dog, Cerarus, through Hades supervised the trial and punishment of the wicked after death. He was not normally one of the judges in the underworld, nor did he personally torture the guilty, a task assigned by the Furies. 
Hades was depicted as a stern and pitiless, unmoved by prayer or sacrifice like death itself. Forbidding and aloft, he never quite emerges as a distinct personality from the shadowy darkness of his realm, not even the myth of his uh, abduction of Persephone. To finish part three of mythology, here's the story of Pandora's box. This version was provided by GreekBoston.com. Prometheus and Epimetheus were titans, but pledged their loyalty to Zeus and the Olympians since Prometheus was born with the special power of prophecy and knew that Zeus would defeat the titans. Zeus rewarded Prometheus and Epimetheus for their loyalty and gave them the job of creating the first creatures to live on Earth. Epimetheus formed the animals and gave each a special skill and form of protection. Prometheus took his time molding man and was left with no forms of protection since Epimetheus had already given them all away. Prometheus knew man needed some form of protection and asked Zeus if he could let the man have a fire. Zeus refused. The fire was only for the gods. Prometheus ignored Zeus and gave man fire anyway. For this, Prometheus was punished. Zeus tied him with chains to a rock far away in the Caucasus Mountains where nobody would find him. Every day Zeus sent an eagle to feast upon Prometheus's liver, which grew back every day so that Prometheus would have to endure this torture every day until Heracles found Prometheus and killed the eagle and let Prometheus go. This torture wasn't enough of a punishment for Zeus, who also believed that humans should be punished for accepting the gift of fire from Prometheus. To punish man, Zeus created a woman named Pandora. She was molded to look like the beautiful goddess Aphrodite. She received the gifts of wisdom, beauty, kindness, peace, generosity, and health from the gods. Zeus brought her to Earth to be Epimetheus's wife, even though Epimetheus's brother, Prometheus, had warned him of Zeus's trickery and told him not to accept gifts from the gods. Epimetheus was too taken with her beauty and wanted to marry her anyway. As a wedding present, Zeus gave Pandora a box. In ancient Greece, this was called a jar, but warned her never to open it. Pandora, who was created to be curious, couldn't stay away from the box, and the urge to open the box overcame her. Horrible things flew out of the box, including greed, envy, hatred, pain, disease, hunger, poverty, war, and death. All of life's miseries had been let out into the world. Pandora slammed the lid of the box back down. The last thing remained inside of the box was hope. Ever since, humans have been able to hold on to this hope in order to survive the wickedness that Pandora had let out. And that is going to shift us from mythology over to the famous deaths portion, which is a mix between famous deaths and many theories, and it is the Paul is Dead conspiracy. About 50 years ago, a Detroit DJ accidentally started the biggest hoax in rock and roll history, the Paul is Dead craze. According to Rollingstone.com, it blew up on October 12, 1969, when Russ Gibb was hosting his show on WKNR. A mysterious caller told him to put on the Beatles' White Album and spin the number 9 number 9 intro from Revolution 9 backwards. When Gibb tried it on air, he heard the words, Turn me down, dead man. The clues kept coming. At the end of the Strawberry Fields Forever, John says, I buried Paul. What could it all mean? The theory meant that apparently Paul McCartney got killed in a car crash back in 1966, and the band replaced him with an imposter. In case you're wondering, he's very well alive. Also from Rolling Stone, as Paul told Rolling Stone in 1974, someone from that office rang me up and said, Look, Paul, you're dead. And I said, Oh, I don't agree with that. 
that's going to end those two, and we're going to go on to a new series called Scandals that will be coming with Season 5, but this is going to be a part of the finale for Season 4. We're going to start off with Bernie Madoff. According to History.com, Madoff, who was born in Queens, New York in 1938, founded a small trading firm bearing his name in the 1960. The business was established in part with money he earned working as a lifeguard. Two decades later, Madoff's firm, which helped revolutionize the way stocks are traded, had grown into one of the largest independent trading operations in the securities industry, and he and his family lived in the life of luxury, owning multiple homes, boats, and expensive artwork and jewelry. Based on the success of his legitimate operations, Madoff launched an investment advisory business as part of his firm. And it was the business that by the 1990s had become a Ponzi scheme, in which he paid his earlier investors with funds received from more recent investors. For years, clients of this business were sent account statements showing consistently high and fraudulent returns. Potential new customers clamored for Madoff to invest their money. However, in 2008, with the U.S. economy crisis, Madoff's financial swindle began to fall apart as his clients took money out faster than he could bring in fresh cash. On December 10, 2008, Madoff revealed to his brother and two sons, who worked for the legitimate arm of his firm, that his investment advisory business was a fraud and nearly bankrupt. Madoff's sons turned their father into federal authorities, who arrested him the next day. Madoff was freed on $12 million bails and placed under 24-hour house arrest at his penthouse on Manhattan's Upper East Side. The fallout from Madoff's scam was widespread. The victims included everyone from his wealthy country club acquaintances, Hollywood celebrities, banks, and hedge funds, to universities, charities, and ordinary individual investors, some of whom lost their life savings. The charitable foundation of Holocaust survival Nobel Peace Prize winner Ellie Weasel lost more than $15 million and also lost his personal savings. Public outrage was further stoked when it was revealed that since the late 1990s, a private financial fraud investigator, Harry Markopoulos, had repeatedly warned the Securities and Exchange Commission about his suspicion of Madoff was operating a massive investment scam. On March 12, 2009, Madoff pleaded guilty to the 11 felony counts against him, including securities fraud, money laundering, and perjury. On June 29th of that year, a federal district court judge in Manhattan sentenced Madoff to 150 years in jail, calling his actions extraordinarily evil. And that is going to wrap up today's episode and season four of Conspiracies with Chase. Thank you so much for being here, not only for this season, but for the last three. We're going to take a short one to two week break from publishing, and we'll be back with season five after that break. Thanks for listening. I'm Chase Abden, telling you that I cannot wait to start chasing conspiracies again in season five again that is going to wrap up season four of conspiracies with chase i again thank you for being with us for this season and all the other seasons hope you guys have an amazing day thank you for listening i'm chase abden signing off for today reminding you to buy some merch and check out our website